by show of hands, who are the crazy people who went out on Friday and did some shopping? Okay. Some of you, you're smart, who didn't. Um, I uh, am super excited about this season. Uh, in the band, man, I'm so blessed. We're so blessed here to have such an incredible um, worship team. And Ruth, Ruth is... Uh, Ruth, who is standing right over here, she, uh, she's going to be Mary in our Christmas performance, so she's really getting into character. She looks like she's nine months pregnant. Um, she really sold out for that character. Uh, we are in Advent season, and Advent is the season in the church calendar that the church has celebrated and centered themselves on the, the anticipation of the birth of Christ. Uh, they've been doing this for almost 2,000 years. And Advent is not only a time where we anticipate the birth of Christ, but also the second coming of Christ. And we center ourselves and prepare our hearts for the Christmas uh, story, for the incarnation, the first coming of Jesus. In this time of year, it's, it's always about kids, right? Um, I have two children. Dex is four. Ivy is six months. Um, but I also have 16 nieces and nephews, and I love watching them rip into their presence. Uh, and Dex, my son, who's four, he's at the stage where he, any present that gets open for a birthday or anything, uh, he just wants to be the one opening it. He just loves opening the presents, and it's super exciting to watch. Um, and as a parent, I've become one of those parents who loves hearing people talk about how cute our kids are. Uh, I am totally that parent. In a meeting last week, someone said, hey, John, I ran into uh, Sarah and your kids the other day at the store. Um, they're super cute. And I'm like, thanks. And they go, also, I was curious about the email I sent you last week. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. go back to how cute my kids are. Tell me more. Tell me, tell me what you thought of them. I love admiring them, but I also love watching other people admire them. If you love my kids, it's one of your best qualities. Uh, <laughs> I'll be in conversation with someone, and I'm just hoping and waiting for them to ask, let me see a picture of your kids. Like, they might say a joke, and they'll say, oh, I'm kidding. And I'll say, kidding? Kid, you, do you want to see a picture of my kids? Here's, here's a picture of my kids. I love this season. We begin a new sermon series called Down to Earth, where we'll dive into the Christmas story and look at some of the characters, culminating in looking to the Son of God inside the manger. And this morning, we're going to dig into some unfamiliar and often overlooked passages of scripture. Genealogies. Genealogies. Have you ever said to yourself, I am going to read the Bible from start to finish. And then somewhere around Numbers, you get to Jehoshaphat begat Manasseh, and Manasseh begat Ishbi Banab, and Ishbi Banab begat, oh my gosh, there's more names. And you're just like, the Lord's okay with me to skip this, right? Uh, in the church world, these parts of the Bible are often called the boring parts. Uh, and it's okay to skip right past them. God's okay with it. But this morning, we are not going to do that. We are going to dive head first into the most boring parts of the Bible and explore the exciting world of the genealogies of Jesus. And uh, it's going to be an awesome journey, shall we? Matthew chapter 1. Oh, I'm sorry. It's just a picture of my kids. How did that get in there? How cute are they? Tell me more. Uh, that was weird. Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. 
Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nishan. Nishan, the father of Salmon. Um, that sounds a bit fishy. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Is he going to keep going? Is he going to read this whole thing? No, I'm going to skip all the way down to verse 15. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. The word of the Lord. God bless you. Have a great Sunday. Uh, just pierces our heart, right? The word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It should just permeate our hearts, right? Let's start with the one that begins in Matthew's gospel here. Matthew starts with the claim that this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David. And this a ton of dudes, including several women. We'll get to that apart a little bit later, culminating with Jesus. It says, Jesus, the son of David. The, the name David here is significant in Hebrew in many ways. For one, the, the number of David is 14, okay? David, 14. The number of his name is 14. Now, I realize that that doesn't make sense for any of us, really. Uh, let me explain. Numbers were very important to the Hebrew people. In the ancient Hebrew world, each Hebrew consonant had a numeric value according to where it fell in the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, and... Uh, it's very simple. Let's put it in English. Here's an example. A is the first letter, so that's a one. Uh, B is the second letter, that's a two. C is the third letter in our alphabet, that would be um, a three. And so the word cab in English would be three plus one plus two is six. Cab is six. So if you wanted to refer to cab, you could just say the number six. And this was a very common practice in the ancient world. It's called gematria. And it's a little bit like Bible math. Uh, and it was a well-known practice in first century Palestine. Okay, back to Matthew chapter 1. In Hebrew, the name David is the, the letters D-V-D, okay? D-V-D. There was no vowels in the ancient Hebrew language, and so it was D-V-D. Uh, D is the fourth letter. V is the sixth. So then David is 4 plus 6 plus 4, 14. David is 14. Why do I show you this? Look at Matthew's genealogy, okay? You're bored, right? It's just a list of names. What a brutal way to begin this book, this gospel, this good news. Unless you count how many names there are. What you'll notice quickly is that they're actually grouped in three different groups of guess how many? 14. Uh, why is this significant? Well, because Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience who knew they were waiting for the promised Messiah who was going to be a son of David, 14. And as they read this, right from the get-go, they're going, whoa, these intentional groupings, David's name, 14, 14, 14, all these different 14s, and the text continues, verse 17, thus there were 14 generations, and all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. David, 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 14, 14, 14. Why is Matthew writing this book? Well, his original audience would have known already from the genealogy. This is the story of the promised Messiah, the descendant of David, the one we've been hoping for and waiting for and praying for and anticipating all these years. 14, 14, 14. David, David, David. Side note, 14 is two of what number? Seven. Great job. I was worried for a second. 
seven. And seven is also an extremely important biblical number, right? It represents God's number, completion, finality. And in the Old Testament scriptures, uh, any witness, any case has to be established by two witnesses. So 14 is two sevens, which adds another layer to this genealogy. He's saying that all those names on the list are acting as witnesses throughout history to Jesus being the Messiah, the son of David. He is saying in an incredibly cryptic and Jewish way that he is writing the gospel. This is truth. It is attested to by witnesses. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's the son of David, established by a full court of witnesses. Not so boring anymore, right? And did you notice something else in the uh, genealogy? Five women are mentioned. And this was incredibly unique in the ancient world. See, they didn't have uh, the knowledge of biology that we now have. And so uh, they knew this, that a woman couldn't get pregnant or have a baby without a man. So therefore, the man was the one who carried the seed. And so men were the only thing that counted. So if you look at any kind of ancient world uh, genealogy, they're only going to list the men again and again and again and again. You always recorded the men, and you only recorded the men. But right here, in the middle of the genealogy of the Son of God, we find five women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah's wife, and Mary. And we'll talk more about Mary in the upcoming weeks, but this is just a scandalous list, okay? Uh, it was already scandalous that he included women in this genealogy, but when you look into the lives of the women he included, it gets even more weird. Uh, quick overview. Tamar, her story is found in Genesis. It's a weird one. Uh, Tamar married one of Judah's sons, and uh, the son didn't act according to God. He dies. Then the Jewish custom at the time was actually written in the law, was that the brother was supposed to now marry to carry on the family line. But this brother, uh, the second son of Judah, doesn't want to get her pregnant because it carries on his brother's line, not his line. And so when they're together, he ensures he doesn't get her pregnant. Adults figure out how that happens, okay? That's in the Bible, okay? And then he dies. Now Judah's like, this is weird, and two of my sons have died, and he's got another younger son who's growing up, who's now supposed to be pledged to marry Tamar, but he's already lost two sons, so he's not interested in losing his, his youngest. And so he pledges him to Tamar, but Tamar is now vulnerable, childless, and husbandless in the ancient world. That's an extremely vulnerable place to be for a woman, and she's longing for a child. And years and years and years go by, and, Je and Judah has no intention of giving his youngest son to Tamar in marriage. So she's hopeless. She, she, she's not being provided for. She has no one to take care of her when she gets older. And so Tamar comes up with a brilliant plan. She goes, I'm going to dress like a prostitute. And then where my, my father-in-law, Judah, walks by, I'm going to tempt him. And she, back then, uh, you, weren't, you weren't supposed to be scantily clad as a prostitute. You covered your face with a veil. And so no one was going to know who it, it really was. And so she goes on the street. She puts on a veil. Judah walks by. They sleep together. The next morning, he wakes up, and his, 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 uh, his coat's gone, his, um, his cord, his staff which is the equivalent of like a driver's license, credit card, and passport in the ancient world. 
okay? It is like what identifies him. And uh, Judah goes on with his life after making that mistake. And three months goes by, and rumors start to circulate that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is pregnant. She must have prostituted herself. So now there's this scandal in the community. Everyone's like, Tamar, she prostituted herself? The, 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 the sentence for that is death? And Judah now is like, yes, she's guilty. We can get rid of her, and I can pledge my son to someone else. And so he thinks his problems are solved. So he gets his stones ready. The community gets together. And when they put her kind of on trial, Tamar says, the, the person I am pregnant by is the owner of this seal, this coat, this staff. And Judah's like, whoopsies. <laughs> and Judah is now caught. And Tamar uh, not only has one child, she gives birth to twins. Um, and she's then provided for. Not only is Tamar mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, but both of her sons as well. Verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Tamar. Prostitution, deception, incest, bribery. In the genealogy of the Son of God. Uh, scandalous. Rahab, the next woman, another hooker, okay? <laughs> She's a pagan prostitute. Her story's found in the second chapter of Joshua, and Rahab lived in the city of Jericho, and in fact, her house was built right on the, the side of the, the, the outer wall, which was a great place for a prostitute. So if any visitors go by the walled city of Jericho, to, uh, Rahab can look out and go, hey guys, Come right up and see me. I've got a special something for you. And then these visitors would go and do all of that. She was a woman who would sell her body for the pleasure of men. When men traveled from great distances, they would come to the walled city. How many hearts do you think she broke? How many homes did she destroy? How many families had she torn apart? How many marriages did she ruin? And she did it all for the love of money. See, it wasn't like she was homeless and hopeless living on the street. Actually, the book of Joshua tells us that her family was living in the city as well. Uh, they, she had her mother, father, brothers, and even sisters lived right in the same city. Yet she traded loot for lust. All through the Bible, whenever her name is mentioned, they go, Rahab the prostitute. Even in the New Testament. That's forever what she'll be remembered by. Prostitute homewrecker. See, one day changed her whole life. She eventually met a man who loved her more for who she was um, than what she could provide for. Uh, and she rescues the Israelite people by hanging a scarlet cord from her window and providing safety for the Hebrew spies. And she meets a man and in time, they got married. They had a child together, and the child's name was Boaz. Boaz ends up marrying a Moabite widow named Ruth, who's the next woman on our genealogy. Another non-Israelite. Her story's found in the book that bears her name. And lastly, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Okay, Bathsheba. And while her husband was off fighting war, her story's found in Samuel and Chronicles. When her husband's fighting a war, she's in her uh, house taking a bath, naked, 
And King David is on the roof, and he looks over yonder and sees Bathsheba taking a bath, which is funny, right? <laughs> Bathsheba's taking a bath. And so then he goes, hey, send her over here, gets her knocked up, and then um, covers up a murder of her husband Uriah. I love that Uriah's in here. He's not just a nameless victim for the agenda of the greatest king in Israel's history, King David, that actually he's included in the genealogy of Jesus. They murder Uriah, and David covers up the whole thing. These are the women found in the genealogy of Jesus. That's weird. In a world dominated by men, when women were seen as possessions, not people, the God of the Bible proclaims these women have their place in history and they have their place in life. All of this in the first 16 boring verses of Matthew's gospel. Let's look at Luke's genealogy. Uh, Luke's is a little bit different. Um, whereas Matthew uh, traces his line from Jesus uh, all the way down, uh, or from Abraham all, all the way up, Luke starts with Jesus moves backwards. Verse 23, chapter 3. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathath. I'll skip a ton. The son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Matthew traces Joseph's line um, all the way back to Abraham. Luke doesn't stop at Abraham. He goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Now, why? Why? Well, Matthew was writing to the Jewish tribe, the Jewish people. So he was establishing his Jewish cred. King David, Abraham, this is important in the Jewish thinking. Luke was the only Greek non-author of, or the only non-Jew author of scripture. He was Greek and he was a doctor. His agenda was a little bit different. He wasn't writing to speak to Jews. He wasn't trying to establish his Jewish cred. He was trying to establish Jesus's cred for all of humanity. So instead of stopping at Father Abraham, who had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham, he goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, the son of God. He's telling a big story about the salvation of all humanity through this Jewish Jesus. He's trying to see the worldwide humanity and the scope of the good news of the gospel. The whole gospel of Luke shows us this, that Jesus is for everybody, not just the Jewish people. He's found among the poor. He goes to the edges, the margins, and embraces the least of these and the unexpected. That's where we find the story of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. Can you see how each of these genealogies is used to serve a larger purpose within their own gospel? The factual accuracy in both cases is secondary to the theological point they're trying to make. This is important because if you make the facts the point and whether or not their genealogies are precisely correct according to the whole scope of the Bible, you're looking for something that wasn't the first intention of the writers. And this is where we get the young earth model. Uh, some scholars got together and they traced all the genealogies throughout the Bible and they established that the world is about 4,000 years old. Maybe at the most 6,000, probably 4,000. Uh, and they did that because they take all of these genealogies as actual perfect genealogies uh, 
with missing nobody. Uh, and, and they're missing uh, the forest for the trees. From Luke's genealogies, we go even further back. Pick another one, Chronicles. Man, if you've ever started to read the book of 1 Chronicles, it's like seven chapters of names. Uh, that's brutal, okay? Uh, it just keeps going and going. Take a look at this. It says this, Ziph, Zipha, Soko, Ziklag, Ophrah, Ophrah, that's, that's a good one. You get a name. Uh, Kanaz, Iru, Name, Guni, Anub, and of course Peleg, who you're familiar with. Uh, Peleg was there in the time that the earth was divided. What does that even mean? What's the point of a list like this? What's the story it's telling? It's the story about this new tribe. All the tribes had their gods and goddesses. And whenever you would go to a different tribe, they would tell you about their gods and goddesses and the sacrifices that they have to make. Each region had its god. But this tribe was supposed to be different. This tribe was to believe that there was one god who was the source of all life. And that God blessed the people of Israel to be a blessing. That is so unique in the ancient world. This was a kill or be killed world. Violent, wild, nomadic. It was, it was more violent than any place we know of today. Kill or be killed. And God carves out this tribe, begins this new nation through Abraham. And he says, you're supposed to, I'm going to bless you and you will be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. And Israel did great when they focused on both. They loved the first part. I will bless you. They struggled mightily with the second part, to be a blessing. And I think that's something that we struggle with in the church today, right? We love, oh, God's going to bless me. He's going to provide for me. He's going to give me good things. He's going to provide me a great job, great family, great kids, two and a half dogs, a white picket fence, all this stuff. Like, we, we want, love that, that part of God blessing us. But he blesses us to be a blessing. We, too, struggle with the same thing the nation Israel did. And the story began with this call to Abraham. And it says that Abraham had faith. He had faith. Faith that a better world was possible. Faith that it wasn't going to all end in violence. Faith that God had a plan and was moving amidst this broken and battered world. And faith that he had a role to play in this new thing that God was doing. Who was Abraham again? That's right, nobody. He was a nobody from Ur. A Abraham was, was a nobody from Ur who twice in a span of four chapters told people that his wife was his sister, pimped her out just so he could save his own hide. Twice. How many times have you guys said, I'm never going to do that sin again? Never going to do that sin again. And then we do that same sin again. Well, we see that all the way back at Abraham. He was a nobody. In the ancient Near East, when you recorded genealogies, you were going to show preeminent people who you were the best, you were the first, you were the most important. If you look at ancient Sumerian, ancient Egyptian, ancient Assyrian, it's all about how important, good, studly, kingly, superhero-like you were. That's not what we find here. Abraham was a nobody. In those long lists of dudes who begat dudes, nobodies, average Joes, or maybe we should say 
Average Methuselahs. Average Jobabs. Average Ziklags. The people who wrote these lists believed that the God of the universe, the singular source of life, was at work within human history through really normal, average people. And God was working to redeem the whole thing. So those lists were a way of saying he was faithful. His son was the real deal. His son stayed the course. They did the right thing. His son was faithful. To the original audience, these stories and genealogies, they weren't boring. They were inspiring. God uses nobodies. God is the God of nobodies. And he's my God. How do you acknowledge the role a nobody played in the redemption of all things, in the movement of God in our world? Well, you write their name down. That's what they did. Those long lists, and the longer the better in the ancient world, they were signs of hope. Hope that nobody has forgotten. Hope that average people who are living normal lives, not known for being heroes or coming from wealthy families or a kingly line, were a part of something bigger than themselves. This is how the Christmas story begins. God using nobodies. God using simple, normal people. Everyday people, faults and all. God is a God of nobodies. I want to invite Stephen and the worship band to come up and we'll close with a song. I want to tell a quick story about a guy named Johnny Makes. Johnny Makes was uh, 17 years old and he was a junior in high school and he was on the football team. He was a wide receiver. And in the championship game, his school that had never won a championship was driving to score the game-winning touchdown. And the pass went right into Johnny Makes' hands. Oh, he dropped it. Right off his shoulder pads, down to the ground. He was a good student, not great. He was a good athlete, not spectacular. He was well-liked, but by no means was Johnny Makes popular. But Johnny Makes uh, filled up his class schedule and needed to fill up his, his junior year with an elective. And he chose this counseling class because he heard it was easy. So he went to this counseling class and one of their uh, practical assignments to learn how to help other people was to um, go to the junior high and to help people and to help kids who were going through stuff at the junior high. And so Johnny Makes goes down with some other counselors and they hang out with junior high kids. 17-year-old hanging out with a 13, 14-year-old. And Johnny Makes developed a good friendship with a couple of them, a couple of brothers, and, and just started hanging out with them. And Johnny Makes was older, so the guys were like, yeah, that's cool. He drives a car. That's awesome. And Johnny Makes invited these brothers to his church. And, and those brothers sat in chairs much like this at 7172 North Cedar Avenue in 1995. And one of those brothers was me. And I responded for the first time, the good news of Jesus. Johnny Makes. John Makels is his real name. Johnny Makes was his nickname. I ran into Johnny Makes a week and a half ago at my son's soccer party after the season was over. He's a CHP now. Johnny Makes led me to Jesus. Um, God uses and delights in using the regular, the normal, the unphenomenal, the nobodies. You and me. God, I pray that this Christmas season, 
that we would know that you don't call the qualified, you qualify the called. And so God, for those of us in this place who beat ourselves up for the mistakes we've made, the bad decisions we've made, that, that we're not good enough, that we're not Christian enough, that we're not holy enough. God, every time we, we, we look back to these genealogies and see that you delight in using the normal and the ordinary for extraordinary things. God, I pray that we would follow your Spirit's lead this week and to be used by you whether that's counseling a kid in eighth grade or knowing that one of our kids' friends is going through a tough time and we're able to help them, we're able to pray for them, we're able to love them. God, I pray that we would be a place that brings hope and that would see these scriptures as a great sign of hope. That whenever we read these genealogies that so-and-so begat so-and-so, that maybe, just maybe, there's something more going on. And instead of skipping past them, may we thank you, Lord, that you include nobodies like us. May we see them as signs of hope. May we perhaps pray for the people in our lives who see themselves as nobodies, and may we be people who wrap our arms around them and tell them, no, you're somebody. God loves you, God has a plan for you. So God, let us be that kind of place. We need you, Jesus. Draw us closer to you, God. During this Christmas season, the season of Advent, may we prepare ourselves. And when someone asks, hey, are you ready for Christmas? That it wouldn't be just about, is your tree up? Are the presents purchased? Have your kids been naughty or nice? That, that we would prepare our hearts to celebrate and anticipate the coming of the Son of God into our world. And may we anticipate and work for your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, anticipation for your second coming. When you make the wrongs of this world right, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we close with this last song? And we thank you. Let's sing this together. There's no place I'd rather be. No place I'd rather be. No place I'd rather be than here in your love, here in your love. There's no place I'd rather be. There's no place I'd rather be. There's no place I'd rather be than here in your love, here in your love. I'm ready.